Hello, I'm Daryl Bloodworth of the Episcopal Church of the Good Shepherd in Maitland, Florida. This is Lesson 13 in our study of the Gospel of John, and we begin in chapter 12 with verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and then wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. So the events of this chapter began about a month after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Recall that Jesus left Judea because he was a wanted man there. His life was in danger if he were to be found by the authorities in Judea, so he left Judea for Ephraim. The Passover was approaching, and Jesus planned to attend Passover in Jerusalem regardless of the consequences. Indeed, he realized his time was near, and he intended to complete the mission given to him by his father. As we discussed previously, Jerusalem would fill up with Jews and proselytes from all over the world at Passover. The population would increase fourfold or more. Therefore, accommodations would be difficult to find in Jerusalem. Matthew tells us that Jesus stayed in Bethany the night of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. As this chapter opens, Jesus has arrived in Bethany the day before he plans to enter Jerusalem on what we now know as Palm Sunday. A dinner is arranged to honor Jesus. Matthew tells us that it was held at the home of Simon the leper. Scripture doesn't tell us who this Simon is, but most biblical scholars believe it is someone whom Jesus had healed. And there was a leper colony just outside Bethany. John tells us Martha was serving and Lazarus was reclining at the table with Jesus, as was the custom. Because Martha was serving, Simon may have been a relative of theirs, or perhaps Martha was simply doing what she always did, serve others. Clearly, Jesus was the guest of honor, but Lazarus, recently raised from the dead, was also an honored guest and given a place of honor at the table. At some point during the meal, Mary appeared with an alabaster jar containing about a pound of very expensive perfume. She approaches Jesus, kneels, and begins to anoint his feet with the perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. John tells us the fragrance of the perfume filled the entire house. Those present would have been stunned into shocked silence, at least initially, by what Mary did for several reasons. First, the perfume used was extraordinarily expensive. It was an over-the-top, extravagant act by Mary. The perfume was worth about 300 denarii, which was about a year's wage for an average worker. If this happened today, the perfume might be worth 30000 to $40,000, which would make the anointing extravagantly shocking if it happened in our presence. 
Second, one would normally anoint someone by pouring oil or perfume over the person's head. And it was an honor to anoint someone in this manner, just it was an honor to receive an anointing in this manner. But Mary shows her humility by taking on the role of a servant or a slave to anoint Jesus' feet. Servants were the one who would normally wash the feet of a visitor, and Mary takes on that role, but expresses her total devotion to Jesus by using the expensive perfume instead of water. Third, Mary lets down her hair and dries Jesus' feet with her hair rather than with a cloth. This would probably have been somewhat scandalous to those present, because Jewish women simply did not let their hair down in public and would never use it to dry someone's feet. Mary, however, is showing her total devotion to Jesus, and this is taking place at a time of great danger for Jesus, which all present would be aware of. Indeed, according to Mark's gospel, Jesus said, she has done this to prepare me for my burial. Mark also adds that Jesus prophesied that wherever the gospel is preached, what Mary has done will be remembered. And so it has been. As we've seen with Jesus' other miracles, they often bring about very different reactions from those observing the miracles. The same is true with this very extravagant act by Mary. Jesus clearly is moved by what she's done. Judas, on the other hand, wants to know why this perfume was not sold for what it was worth and the proceeds given to the poor. This is a question that probably others at the dinner also wondered. But John is quick to point out Judas wasn't concerned about the poor. In fact, he was the keeper of the purse and had often pilfered from it. This, of course, was not known by the disciples at the time, but they learned of this later. Jesus quickly rebukes Judas, pointing out to him that the poor will always be with you, but you do not always have me. We don't know if this rebuke of Judas was the last thing that led him to betray Jesus or not. What we do know is that it was only a day or two later that Judas goes to the high priest to offer to betray Jesus into their hands for 30 pieces of silver. Let's continue now with verses 9 through 11. When the great crowd of the Jews learned that he was there, they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests uh, planned to put Lazarus to death as well, since it was on account of him that many of the Jews were deserting and were believing in Jesus. So the party for Jesus apparently attracted not just Jews in Bethany, but also some of the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem. They were curious not only to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus. Lazarus was a particular problem for the Sadducees, who it is believed made up a majority of the Sanhedrin council. You'll recall that the Sadducees were quite different from the Pharisees. They were more political in their outlook and were collaborationists with the Romans. Theologically, they also differed from the Pharisees. Whereas the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead, the Sadducees did not. They believed that when one died, that was the end. So when Lazarus was resurrected from the dead, that was a theological problem for them as well as a political problem. 
politically they were concerned that Jesus would lead an uprising against the Romans, which would be brutally put down and perhaps cause them to lose their position as leaders of the Jews. Theologically, it became difficult for them to assert there is no resurrection when it was plainly evident that Lazarus was dead and then, at Jesus' command, was resurrected to life again. So the Sadducees decided to join with the Pharisees to get rid of Jesus. Additionally, since Lazarus himself was living proof of what Jesus could do, they determined to get rid of Lazarus as well. There are no scriptures that tell us whether they were ever successful in getting rid of Lazarus, but once Jesus was sent to the cross, they likely lost interest in killing him. Let's continue now with verses 12 through 19. The next day the great crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Jesus found a donkey and sat on it. As it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. Look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written of him and had been done to him. So the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify. It was also because they heard that he had performed this sign that the crowd went to meet him. The Pharisees then said to one another, You see, you can do nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. These verses describe what occurs the day following Mary anointing Jesus' feet. The crowds are beginning to flow into Jerusalem for the entire week of Passover. Indeed, many have already arrived. The interest in Jesus by this time is sky high. By now, the news of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead had been widely distributed, along with the news of Jesus' other miracles. For festivals such as this, when large crowds flowed into Jerusalem, large numbers of Roman soldiers would also be present in force to put down any riots or uprisings that may occur. When the crowd learns that Jesus is coming, they cut down palm branches and spread them on the path ahead of Jesus. The palm branch was a a national symbol that appeared on Jewish coins, so there are national overtones to what is happening, especially with the people declaring, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But that wasn't all. They were also yelling out, blessed is the king of Israel. So without question, Jesus is entering Jerusalem, where he's a wanted man, but he's entering as a royal figure. Jesus, of course, realizes the significance of the moment, and he finds a young donkey to sit on as he enters Jerusalem. This is a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which was a prophecy that the king who was to come would be riding on a donkey's colt. A lot is going on at the time, and even the disciples didn't fully understand what was occurring. As John tells us, they only understood the meaning of what occurred after Jesus had been raised from the dead. The fact Jesus chose to enter on a donkey's colt was a clear messianic claim by Jesus. 
But it also declared for anyone who had eyes to see just what kind of Messiah Jesus would be. What the Jews were looking for was a David-like figure, a warrior who would lead the nation into a rebellion against the Romans. But warriors don't come riding on a donkey. Warriors come riding on a horse. And conquering warriors usually rode in on a white horse. The fact Jesus chose a donkey on which to enter Jerusalem confirmed his messianic role, but it also proclaimed what kind of Messiah he would be. Not a conquering warrior, but rather the humble Lamb of God who came in peace to take away the sins of the world. But in the turmoil of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, the crowds only saw what they wanted to see in a Messiah, a conquering king. Once more, Jesus was misunderstood, even in this triumphal moment, and even by his own disciples. The response of the Pharisees upon seeing the crowds proclaiming Jesus as king is very interesting, and it confirms just how zealous the crowds were for Jesus at this moment. They were declaring their king had come. But the response of the Pharisees also confirms their worst fears. As they said, look, the whole world has gone after him, which makes them more determined than ever to get rid of Jesus. We continue on now with verses 20 through 36. Now, among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard it and said that it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not for mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate the kind of death he was to die. The crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is with you for a little longer. Walk while you have the light, so that the darkness may not overtake you. If you walk in the darkness, you do not know where you are going. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become children of the light. 
So at this point in time, which is right after the triumphal entry to Jerusalem, the other three Gospels tell the story of the second temple expulsion in which Jesus drives out the money changers and those selling animals for sacrifice, just as he had done early in his ministry, which we covered previously. John doesn't include that story but instead substitutes for it the story of a group of Gentile Greeks who asked to meet with Jesus. Although we can't be sure, it's possible they are coming to thank Jesus for driving the commercial businesses out of the temple. Remember, it was in the court of the Gentiles where the money changers and animal sellers had been doing business. Once Jesus drove the money changers and merchants from the court of the Gentiles, the Gentiles finally had a place in the temple to pray during Passover. So it's these Gentiles that approach Philip, perhaps because he has a Greek name, and Philip and Andrew inform Jesus they want to see him. Jesus' response may seem strange, but it is understandable when put in context. Previously, Jesus has said repeatedly, that his time had not yet come. Perhaps the Gentiles coming to see Jesus was the sign to Jesus that his time finally had come. His response to Philip and Andrew was, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He follows that statement up with others that hint as to what lies ahead. First, the grain of wheat must fall to the earth and die. Second, the man who hates his life will keep it. Third, whoever serves me must follow me. These statements are followed up by one of the most comforting statements Jesus ever uttered. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. What more could anyone ask? The next statement, though, by Jesus reveals the profound nature of the moment and shows that Jesus was wrestling with the Father's will, which he will continue to do until the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was betrayed. He says, Now my soul is troubled. And yet he goes on to acknowledge this is the moment he has come for. And he asks God to glorify uh, his name, referring to the Father's name. To the shock of all standing there, a voice from heaven responds, I have glorified it, and I will again. The people are confused once more. They heard the voice, but weren't sure what they heard. Jesus promptly tells the crowd, though, that the voice from heaven they have just heard is for their sake, not his. And he tells them the day of judgment has arrived, and the ruler of this world, referring to Satan, will be driven out. Jesus goes on to say that when he is lifted up from the earth... He will draw all people to himself. Now, some have interpreted this statement to refer to Jesus' ascension, but it actually refers to his crucifixion, and the crowd gets it. They understand he is referring to crucifixion. And this statement causes more confusion. They say, Scripture says the Messiah will remain forever. So why do you say he must be lifted up? And by the way, who is this Son of Man? Well, Jesus responds with a figure of speech he has used before, that of light and darkness. He warns them the light will only be with them a little longer, and they should walk in the light while they can and become children of the light. Then in verse 36, John tells us Jesus hid from them. 
Remember, Jesus has just come out of hiding to attend the festival, and now he, the wanted man, returns to hiding. So let's continue on with verses 37 to 43. Although he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe in him. This was to fulfill the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so they could not believe, because I also said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, so that they might not look with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw his glory and spoke about him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human glory more than glory that comes from God. So in these verses, we find John whispering to us the meaning of what he has just written about in the previous verses. The people, or most of them, still don't believe in Jesus, despite having seen sign after sign. The eyes of the blind open, the lame walk, thousands fed, and the dead raised. It reminds John of a passage from Isaiah chapter 53, where Isaiah asks a rhetorical question. Who has believed our message? John follows that quote with another quote from Isaiah, which at first glance appears to say God intentionally hardened the hearts of unbelievers to prevent them from believing. Indeed, some who believe in strict predestination often quote these passages from Isaiah. But what Isaiah was referring to was the stubborn disbelief which existed during his time. And John is pointing out that a similar stubborn disbelief also existed during Jesus' ministry. The statement about God hardening their hearts is referring to God turning the people over to the consequences of their own stubborn disbelief after God has made overtures through the prophets time and again, and now by God's own Son to change the hearts of the people. What Jesus is saying is that there comes a point where God gives the stubborn disbelievers over to their own hardness of heart and the consequences of sin that will play out in their lives if they continue to pursue living a sinful life. Indeed, Paul discusses this very process in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. John also says Isaiah wrote what he did because he foresaw the coming of the Messiah and prophesied that many would reject him. According to John, many people, even many of the authorities, believed in Jesus but were unwilling to proclaim him publicly because of the threat by the Pharisees to ban anyone from the synagogue who professed faith in Jesus. John also whispers that they prioritized human acceptance and approval over acceptance and approval from God. Remember, the synagogue was at the center of Jewish life, and for many, being banned from the synagogue was too high a price to pay for following Jesus, even if they believed strongly in him. That is one of the sadder statements in all of John's gospel. 
Let's wrap up this chapter now with verses 44 through 50. Then Jesus cried aloud, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in the darkness. I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. On the last day, the word that I have spoken will serve as judge, for I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I speak, therefore, I speak just as the Father has told me. These verses are the last public teaching by Jesus, or at least the last recorded by John. The remaining teaching will be solely to his disciples and followers. And we find that these verses are a summary of his teaching. John says Jesus cried aloud, referring to speaking in a very loud voice. In that loud voice, he proclaims that whoever believes in him believes in God. And whoever sees him has seen God who sent him. He has come to be the light of the world, so people that believe in him will not walk in darkness. He hasn't come to judge people, even those who don't accept his word, but rather he has come to bring salvation. But for those who don't believe him, the words he has spoken will be their judge on the last day. And the words he has spoken come not from Jesus, but from the Father. The words from the Father that he has spoken are eternal life. Having summarized his gospel for the last time publicly, Jesus turns his attention in the coming chapters to preparing the disciples for what lies ahead. In our next lesson, we will take up chapter 13 of the Gospel of John.